The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. A warm welcome to this Tuesday edition of Sportbox. In your headlines this hour, Wall Street posts its worst day since June, while 10-year Treasury yields top 3%, as traders bet Fed rate setters will reinforce their hawkish position at this week's Jackson Hole Symposium. The dollar strengthens while the euro touches a two-decade low as the continent scrambles to secure gas supplies ahead of the winter. Well, you've got Canada now considering uh, easing cutting red tape, easing cutting two birds, uh, to help with gas exports to Europe as German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, crosses the Atlantic seeking alternatives to Russian energy. And China's central bank calls on leaders to stabilise credit growth as it announces $29 billion worth of special loans to property developers to help ease a worsening housing crisis. And a changing of the guards at Adidas as the German sporting company announces the surprise departure of CEO Kasper Rohrstedt. You're going to get a lot of headlines. Worst day since June. Blah, blah, blah. The fact of the matter is this market has had a rollicking good run to the upside. We've had a really big four-week rally uh, on equities, especially stateside as well. And the market's giving back a little bit now because of all the uncertainty that was there before the four-week rally. Guess what? It's still there, isn't it? Let's be honest about it. Name me one factor that sent the markets down uh, into extreme bear market territory that has cleared itself up now. Do you want to go through a few? We'll go through a few. I mean, just from the headlines as well. Do we know anything about the ultimate destiny uh, of US interest rates? About the ultimate destiny of US inflation? About where the labour market is going at the moment? About the strength of the consumer in the US? We don't really, do we? We have some ideas that some of the markers are topping out on inflation. And that's great news for those who are worried about a very hawkish Fed. But as we've seen uh, from these US markets, we don't necessarily have valuation support. Now, I know that there's a few uh, of of the market out there who are now screaming at the telly saying, of course we have valuation support. Well, look on a 20-year basis. On a 10-year basis, I understand what you're saying. On a period where we've had the lowest interest rates in history, in recorded economic history, with negative rates in some parts. I hear what you're saying. Then you've had some valuation support. But if you look over a longer time frame at what things were like before we had such extreme rates as well, actually the valuation support is a little bit shaky in part. We saw a very eloquent guest on the show yesterday talking about actually some areas of the cyclical but not growth areas are offering some decent support as well. And I will take that. I think there are pockets in the market where extreme valuations are looking less extreme. But the fact of the matter is, if you are worried about interest rates going up, and let's face it, we saw a call, was it from City yesterday, talking about UK inflation topping out at 18%, 50-year highs. So when you've still got those kind of calls out there and calls for the UK Central Bank, the Bank of England, to get up to 7%, which would wipe out a property market, by the way, or certainly wipe out a lot of people within that as well, 
then you can say, well, actually, we're still having a very live inflation debate. So we've got the inflation debate. We've got the jobs debate. We've got the interest rate debate. We're certainly still feeling the effects of COVID in parts of the world. And hence Jeff's headline about China and the concern about property there as well. And some of the dynamics beneath the hood in the Chinese economy still beginning to worry people as well. So you've got that as well. What else have you got? Well, you've got the euro trading at 20-year lows. Okay, I appreciate the fact that it's part of the dollar side of the story as well, which is trading back on the front foot again very aggressively, by the way, the dollar index moving higher again as well. But you've got an energy crisis in Europe where you're seeing double-digit gains in the price of gas at what is, let's face it, early autumn or late summer when you should have full storage. And we're worried now about the latest shenanigans from the Russians about planned maintenance at the end of the month as well. So there are real worries there about the recessionary impact for Europe as well at a time when we have that inflation, when the central bank doesn't know whether to raise rates or, or, or do what with them because they're so worried and petrified about the European economy, which, by the way, happens to have one or two political problems. And if you think that you haven't got them in Germany as well, look at Scholz's popularity. Look at the problems in the UK with where the next prime minister is going to have an emergency budget or not. Look at the problems in Italy where you've got a centre-left which is fracturing and could let in uh, a right, slightly anti um, EU government as well and real problems there as well. So there are issues galore and you're supposed to buy the market in this environment? It's a very, very tough call. Very tough call indeed. So that's what we were down across the board on the US indices yesterday. Let's have a look at a couple of uh, sectors very quickly. I'll roll through this. I've had this speech. Now the sectors very quickly. We'll have a look at those. <sighs> right, okay. Uh, here we are eventually. S&P uh, utilities down 1.4%. The tech sector down 2.8%. Consumer discretionary. Uh, big names were down yesterday. Uh, NVIDIA, there were issues. Uh, Tesla, there were issues. Um, Amazon, there were issues. Hence, consumer discretionary down 2.8% as well. Moving on to the treasuries again. North of 3%. We are back on the 10-year. I sound like Yoda there, putting my verbs all over the place. Uh, 3% uh, 10-year paper there. Still got this uh, inversion with the two-year trading at 3.3%. Dollar crosses look like this. Again, rallying pretty heavily across the board. We still haven't got a 138 handle yet on the dollar yen, but sterling under pressure yet again. All kinds of problems and concerns about the economy there and about the political situation. The euro now closer to 99 than parity. Now, speaking to our colleague stateside, Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania said signs of a drop off in economic activity uh, do mean that he doesn't expect a great deal more tightening from the Fed. How do you add 3.2 million workers as we have in 2022 and have zero increase in GDP? The biggest collapse in productivity in history and nary a word from our central bank or our government about, gee, what's causing that? And if we have a snapback in that biggest collapse in history, that's going to also lower prices going forward. So I don't think we have to do that much more tightening. Yeah, very interesting. And I listen to uh, Professor Siegel a lot. They have a good podcast. And um, he actually thinks that we may get away without a serious U.S. recession. But, of course, it depends on his argument being correct, that the Fed is actually nearly done here. Uh, And I guess we'll just have to watch and see what happens through the rest of the week uh, at this Jackson Hole summit to find out exactly how aggressive or otherwise the Fed speakers are going to sound. But he's not going to about turn at Jackson Hole, is he? He's not going to say we're done or we're nearly done. 
Or is he? Or is the market going to find some way of interpreting that he's saying that? I don't know. I mean, we, we've all... It, that, that's the fascinating thing about watching this programme every morning, that we're... You know, this is real time. It's yeah. like sport. You, you just don't know what's going to happen Probably until it happens. Probably better than sport made my teams are playing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's not dwell on personal pain at this stage. <laughs> let's have a look at the uh, European yields then, if we can pop up these yields here and just have a look at how Europe is uh, responding as well. And we've got that 10-year bund. Uh, up at one spot three, the uh, the French OAT at 1.89, as you can see here. And keep your eye on that spread between the Bund and the Italian paper, because that BTP to Bund spread tells you a lot about how investors are feeling about the creditworthiness of Italy. The uh, Dutch natural gas price, uh, again, we saw a, a, a spike, I think, in the German and the Dutch gas price overnight and you and I were chatting a little bit I mean there is a connection between the crude oil market and the gas market it isn't always obvious when you look at the way that these um, uh, different uh, contracts trade but yesterday there did seem to be a little bit of a pushback to the recent weakness we've seen on some of these energy contracts this talk that maybe OPEC plus will be in cutting mode soon. Anyway, UK inflation could hit 18.6% next year, driven by surging wholesale energy prices and household bills. That is the latest guesstimate from Citigroup. The estimate is above the Bank of England's own forecast of 13% by year-end. Citigroup says it thinks the UK's retail energy price cap to top £5,800 by April, up from its current level of just below £2,000, will lead inflation to, quote, enter the stratosphere. Well, there's a lot to talk about with Daniel Murray, Global Head of Research and CEO at EFG Asset Management in Switzerland. Daniel, good morning and thank you for joining us. Look, Steve outlined a whole list of things to worry about as he took us through the market walls here. And we did get a pullback yesterday in the markets as they think about Jackson Hole. What do you think investors should be doing with their money? How should they be assessing the risk in equities? Yeah, obviously, uh, it's been quite difficult markets uh, over the past few days. But I think it's useful just to reflect on where we've come from. And I think from mid-June, really, there were a few factors that contributed to the rally since then. So we had, uh, you know, more attractive valuations at that point in time. Uh, we had, uh, you know, decent earnings season sentiment that was very beaten up. Uh, and, uh, of course, we also had this peak in uh, uh, rate expectations. And I think that conspired jointly to help drive markets higher from those mid-June lows. And I think now, if you think about those sort of three or four pillars that supported markets over the past six to eight weeks, then some of them are perhaps less robust than they were at that time. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily we're in a terrible period for equity markets, but I think that uh, you know, it's reasonable to expect equity markets to uh, uh, continue to be volatile in the uh, next few weeks as the markets digest its sort of changing news on uh, inflation activity and, of course, the policy response to that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting at the moment, this, this uh, push and pull that we're getting in the market over whether the Fed is close to being done here or not. And you would have heard the little clip we played of Professor Siegel there, who has his own view that the, the props for this recent growth are being kicked away and actually the market is becoming 
convinced that the Fed is close to the end of this hiking cycle. How do you feel about the current place that we're in with regard to US interest rates? Yeah, I don't think the Fed really knows. I think, you know, we fall back on that old statement about the Fed being data dependent and dependent on incoming information. Uh, I think that we've only really had one softer inflation point, but absolute rates of inflation are still very high. We know that growth is slowing in the US, uh, albeit it looks to be more robust than in Europe. We know that growth is slowing in many other parts of the world. Uh, and we know that the lagged benefits of all that nice COVID stimulus that we had is also fading. So it's a very difficult set of circumstances. Um, I think uh, you know, the Fed is just going to review the situation as the data comes in. My sense is that we have fewer rate hikes ahead of us than we've had over the past um, uh, sort of six months. So I think, um, you know, there's less far to go than we've travelled, so to speak. Daniel, love it to you. We haven't travelled anywhere in Europe yet. We're at zero. OK, I get it. We're not in negative, but we are at zero. Zero is not an inflation fighting interest rate, is it? No, and I think, uh, you know, what you highlighted before about the uh, peripheral spreads or spreads you know, between Italy and Germany just highlights the problematic nature of monetary policy and policy in general across Europe. It's very difficult to have a one-size-fits-all policy. So even though some countries perhaps are looking a bit more robust, other countries are looking a bit more vulnerable, we know that Europe is facing massive cross-currents from uh, energy problems associated with Russia and Ukraine, and that directly affects um, uh, you know, the manufacturing sector and, of course, directly affects uh, consumers. So, you know, much more problematic in Europe. And, um, uh, you know, it's anyway a much more complicated uh, policy uh, picture in Europe, regardless of what's going on. But, you yeah, know, current situation makes it even more complicated for Europe. It's a very difficult situation. I, I'm always worried about the next thing. I, I probably should just relax a little bit more and just chill. But I am worried about it. And I think that actually having only a 0% rate at the ECB means to me that they are absolutely terrified. And I won't hear it from any of the policymakers. Every time I speak to one of them, they're talking, tell, him, tell me I'm talking rubbish. But you can only have a 0% rate when you've got an 8% handle on inflation. It says to me they're terrified about the next sovereign debt crisis hence their actions to try and rein in some of these peripheral yields, which actually over historical levels aren't even that high. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the language that's couched in, of course, is that they want to protect the transmission mechanism and ensure that um, monetary policy gets into all the nooks and crannies across the eurozone economy. But I think uh, that's broadly correct. There's clearly much more stress on the eurozone economy emanating from events in Ukraine. Uh, you know, to some extent, this is an own goal with respect to the fact that Europe is trying to wean itself off Russian energy. That you know, perhaps suggests that there might be some rationing in the future. That would naturally impact activity. So, yeah, much more complicated set of circumstances. And against all that, of course, Eurozone economy likely has lower trend growth anyway than the US. So it's a complicated picture. Daniel, a couple of things that struck me in your notes, and I just wanted to tease these out of you. Our preferred currency is the Chinese renminbi. When it comes to favoured uh, markets regionally within equities, China and Japan, can, can you just walk us through the argument? Yeah, the, the, the simple sort of headline associated with that is that China and Japan still are stimulating. So whereas most of the rest of the world is uh, tightening monetary policy and intentionally or unintentionally tightening fiscal policy, Japan and China are, are two large economies in the world that are doing the opposite. I think what we've been disappointed on with China is that the pace of easing and the scale of easing has been rather disappointing. So obviously we've seen a couple of uh, 
rate cuts recently, but you know, ten or fifteen basis points here, or even a five basis point move on the one year rate yesterday, you know, probably not going to do an awful lot. And um, so I think uh, that's a bit disappointing. And of course, China, uh, you know, as was highlighted earlier, still prone to uncertainty over COVID. So uh, uh, you know, we like these parts of the world essentially because of the potential for greater policy stimulus. But I think with China in particular, we, we have been a bit disappointed over the past uh, couple of months. Daniel, good to see you. Thanks so much for helping us out this morning. Daniel Thank Murray, you. Global Head of Research and CEO at EFG Asset Management in Switzerland. And as we may well have mentioned, CNBC will be on the ground in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, coverage begins on Thursday and we'll also be bringing you live coverage from several of the speeches at the symposium. I think really... I mean, we've got loads of great people. Patrick Harker, who's a governor, James Bullard, Raphael Bostic. But I can't help thinking it's all about Jerome Powell. Uh, main man, main event, whatever he says is going to be so highly poured over. Uh, highly anticipated keynote speech, that is on Friday at 1600 CET. Japanese factory activity is growing at its slowest pace, meanwhile, in 19 months. August manufacturing PMI came in, it's in expansion, 51.0, down from 52.1 the month before. The drop-off in activity comes on the back of surging raw material and energy costs, coupled with volatile consumer demand. We're going to be receiving the first manufacturing services and composite PMI readings for August from across Europe through the course of this morning. I can barely wait. Uh, Forecasts point to a contraction in general activity for Germany and the Eurozone, whilst French and UK activity is expected to remain just above the flatline. And still to come on the programme, Germany and Canada agree to boost energy ties with the door open to potential LNG exports. We're going to talk about that after the break. And I don't know whether you saw it, but there was a topless protest in front of the German I Chancellor. I did see it, although I didn't look, I click on the photo because I've modestly say. Right. Good. Was it a man or a lady? Uh, I think it was a lady. Okay. I think it was a couple of ladies, actually. Okay, well, I certainly didn't see that. We will take the break. We'll be right back, everybody. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Saudi Arabia says OPEC is ready to cut oil output to, quote, correct the downturn in crude prices. This despite Europe facing fresh disruption in energy supplies and U.S. crude inventories likely falling last week. In an interview with Bloomberg, the Saudi Arabian energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, said the kingdom has the means and flexibility to deal with current challenges. Um, I know we've got some brilliant stories to read, and we will get through to them, but I am gobsmacked by this interview, and I think it's a very important interview that Bloomberg have conducted here. So I, I, I know uh, His Excellency, His Royal Highness, I've known him for 20 years, and he doesn't say things that he doesn't mean. And I, I, I want to just step back a tiny bit and have a quick chat about this one, because for Saudi, at this stage of the cycle, when there is so much handering about where the supply is coming from. We're desperate for supply, left, right and centre. Biden has pretty much gone to the Saudis and say, please give us all you've got as well. To turn around and say that we are potentially going to be, they're de facto saying, maybe having a look at cuts or certainly less production going forward. That, I think, is extraordinary. 
And, and to me, it makes me think, what does his uh, Royal Highness uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, what does he know that, or what is he worried about? also to the point as well, because the Saudis are having a brilliant time in terms of their oil revenue at the moment. We know that. They, they've got the price to triple digit. There are there, give or take the change. And we're back up to 97 on those comments yesterday. We were down to a 92 handle at our low yesterday. What are they worried about? And, and the truth is they're worried about history. And he's a great student of oil history, much more than I will ever be. And the fact is, he knows that these recessions can be very, very violent to the downside for the price of oil. Now, Saudi at the moment, their revenues are stunning. I think we saw some Aramco figures when I was on holiday last week, which I may or may not have had a look at, which were just brilliant for Saudi. But what are they worried about for their exchequer? What are they worried about for the cost of, um, of, um, of looking after their domestic population? The cost of the huge amount of air conditioning costs and, and fuel costs that they have domestically throughout the summer as well. So they've had the same food price inflation the rest of us have had globally, the same civil concerns as well, what it means for their population as well. So how worried are the Saudis at this moment, at a time when all we're looking at is where we can find the extra barrel from? The fact that they may even be talking about production cuts, I think that is fascinating. Uh, well, it, it sounds like a rhetorical question. <laughs> well, uh, and I would love know, give, to speak to us, his, his Royal Highness about so, it. So give us your interpretation. Well, what is on the table you think I that's think they look at history, they look at every time where they've had triple-digit oil prices, and they know how violent the move to the downside can be, potentially, right. from a recession. So, um, I mean, the interesting uh, question at the moment is, is how this feeds into the broader geopolitical relationships because we know Biden went there Biden didn't seem to come away with very much but we did get the announcement of a modest increase which just about everybody said quite frankly isn't much more than a symbolic act at this point to make it look like Biden doesn't completely have egg on his face but at these prices surely they understand that they are hastening demand destruction as as you always quote the answer to high prices is high prices because very high prices beget demand destruction begets lower prices and it seems to me that most of the integrated oil businesses that we've had the, the pleasure of talking to over the last few months as they've reported their quarterly earnings which have been very very strong their working idea of where a barrel of oil should be or will be is much lower than it currently is so those models are going to look um, completely wrong if we actually sit at $90 a barrel plus because OPEC plus continues to tighten the screws on, on the global economy by um, reducing output. Everything that I hear from the experts, and there are brilliant analysts out there, there are brilliant reporters out there as well who do brilliant work on this, has been pointing to an upside squeeze in product, and the raw material as well. If suddenly, from the comments from Abdulaziz, we're now all beginning to look at sub $90 a barrel potentially because the Saudis are worried about something, that turns everything on its head as far as I can see. Now, I know the algorithms and the models will say we still have supply shortage. We have supply shortage going into autumn. We have supply shortage going into the winter as well. Of course, concerns. Uh, about where Europe is going to find its energy from. But that's a gas issue as much as anything else as well. So I, I just think if Germany goes into recession, we saw weak data 
uh, out of Japan in terms of the manufacturing. We're talking about stopping the interest rate hikes in the United States or certainly lessening with Mr. Siegel there as well because of concerns about what's happening to the underlying economy as well. Plus, we're having a conversation about China uh, and the stimulatory measures that the government and the PBOC on an almost daily basis are trying to chuck at the Chinese economy. So if you add it all together, China, Japan, Germany, stroke Europe and the United States as well. The Saudis are very aware of this. Oh, well, throw in something else here because um, uh, the dollar, dollar index has strengthened to 109 spot 14. The um, euro has weakened a little further here. So we are at a two decade low as far as the euro is concerned. So inevitably that is going to make every barrel of oil bought in Europe, in euros, even more expensive, even more inflationary for the eurozone economies at the moment. So you could just chuck that on top yeah. of all of the um, issues that you've currently laid out uh, as to why it is going to be very difficult here for the global economy to struggle through this next phase. Uh, let's move on because uh, we, we've done it justice. We should get one of our oil experts on as well now. Um, not my beat anymore. Right. Germany and Canada have agreed to boost energy and mineral exports in order to wean themselves off fossil fuels. Uh, leaders of the two countries have held talks in Montreal. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the war in Ukraine accelerated efforts between the two, adding that the door is open for possible LNG exports to Europe. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said the country is looking to end its dependence on Russia, expressing the need for solidarity. I'd like to expressly thank Canada for making it possible to return and overhaul turbines to Germany. It's now in Germany. It's ready to be used and this decision was an important one because it debunked Putin's game. And his strategy was to divide partners and allies and to divide us in our support for Ukraine. But we were able to show that Russia is no longer a reliable business partner. It has reduced gas supply to all of Europe, always allegedly because of technical problems that do not exist. So it's important that we do not fall into Putin's trap and that we stand together. Oh, well, Schultz there. Uh, no protests in that shot. It's a breakfast show, this. Uh, Uniper, family show. Uniper says it will restart a coal-fired power plant amid disruption in gas supplies from Russia. The Hayden 4 power plant will produce electricity until April next year. It was closed for commercial production in 2020 as Germany sought to cut carbon emissions. Uh, Total Energies and ENI have announced a major natural gas discovery off the island of Cyprus, the area which reportedly uh, indicates a total gas capacity of 2.5 trillion cubic feet, is the third offshore gas find reported near the Greek-Turkish island. The two companies say the discovery could help Europe boost its energy security. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.